bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Today we'll be talking with somebody who went from one extreme to another. And you'll find out here next, here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please. Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Uh, as I stated in my opening message, I, we'd be talking with a guest today who's gone from one extreme to another. And um, he's gone from uh, action motor sport or action sports to the world of comedy. And we're going to talk with him to see. What got him into the first part and what led to the second part. But I'd like to welcome today's guest, Clint Esposito. How you doing, Clint? Very good. Thanks for having me on. Okay. I have one question that's really off subject, but I have to ask it. All right. Are you in any way related to the famous Esposito hockey playing brothers from the South? No. Okay. Just I get that all the anybody, <laughs> anybody that's uh, my age or a little older that yeah. knows hockey asks me that. Well, that would be cool though. Well, I am ironically a Rangers fan and do have a number seventy-seven Esposito jersey. Well, there you go. I was going to say <laughs> Phil spent some time there, so yeah. Well, I bought. They were manufacturers when I was growing up. I'm. Uh, 60 years old now, but when I was in my teens, street hockey was very big in St. Louis, and they were uh, part of a manufacturing company that made street hockey equipment. So, okay, yeah, so I was one just wondering if you might be connected, but not uh, that I know of. Okay, so, uh, action. Sports. What did you do in action sports? Motor so sports. I did. Yeah. So I guess I'm in the uh, the crosshairs there, both of them. Okay. So it was uh, first I raced motocross, and then I ended up going a freestyle motocross. So basically, X Games guys doing backflips on dirt bikes, you know, motorcycles. Mm-hmm. 
um, yeah, so I, I raced for, you know, years growing up. I had a pro license for three years, and then I got offered to do some monster truck shows. And uh, I was already doing a couple of tricks just for fun. And then once I saw that avenue and it was actually more of a clear-cut way to generate money versus, you know, racing, you at least knew what you were going to get paid in freestyle. And then I uh, started my own company and did that for 16 years. Oh. So, would it be a stress to say that you are an adrenaline junkie? So, I have heard this explained, because <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so, because uh, I don't necessarily like jumping jumps for the first time on a dirt bike is always uh, super nerve-wracking, and I don't necessarily like being that nervous, so... I heard somebody say that um, action sports athletes were more flow junkies because okay. while you're doing something like that, you kind of get into a flow state. And it's actually um, when you're doing something active like that, it's actually a little easier to get into a flow state. And ha after hearing that, I knew that I kind of used um, dirt bikes and racing on a track as a little bit of a getaway when I was younger. And I, kind of actually did it intentionally because you know while you're riding it's so intense you can't think of other things so it's easy to separate yourself from the rest of life's worries yeah i kind of i kind of understand that i'm a and i'm not a great runner or anything but i've um, gotten into running in my 40s and um i actually did it when i was much younger in my teens and 20s but um, um, I kind of understand the um, what what us runners, runners high. Right, I was just going to say what us runners would call runners high. Yep. So, yeah. And to this day, I can. I, it's odd. Every once in a while, I can still hit it where it's like I'm running and I don't feel anything, and it's just coming very easily, easily, and. Uh, it's very relaxing, and I'm just one with my surroundings. Where there's other times, <laughs> after the first quarter of a mile, I just want to stop because it, everything hurts and I'm not yeah. in tune and whatnot. So, you know, a lot of that I would say, and this is probably it's just a good uh, metaphor for life, but a lot of it is getting out of or like getting into the breathing pattern. And, and like with meditation or something where you kind of go inside and you're focusing on your breathing pattern. And that's, I would imagine, and, and I did, you know, like in motocross racing, they're, they're 20 to 30 minute motos. So a lot of it is getting in, getting yourself um, into a pattern of breathing and a rhythm. And I know that, you know, training I've run a little bit too, and it's kind of a similar thing. But even in normal life, you know, like if you get hurt or something, the best way to get through it is to calm down and, you know, breathe, you know, some nice deep breaths. And uh, uh, that usually settles you down a little bit. So was there anything more than just um, getting into your zone that led you to uh, action motorsports? Um. Honestly, so it's funny because my dad rode motorcycles, Harley Davidson's, when I was young. But he basically, when I was born, he stopped uh, because he didn't want to get in an accident or something and then leave us, you know, with nobody to take care of or, you know, just right. our mom. Um, so I actually never really saw him ride motorcycles when I was young. There were some in the garage, but like I said, they never even got taken out of there. And uh, we had a four-wheeler. And eventually I saw Supercross on TV. I could even, it was 1989, I saw the Dallas Supercross. And there was a big battle in it. And that was it. I was just like, this is, what is, I didn't even know this existed. <laughs> this is amazing. So that was it. I just got hooked from then. Yeah. That's how um, hockey was for me at age six. Saw it on TV for the first time and just fell in love with it. And, and it uh, has stuck with me all my life ever since. Um, at some point, did it become stressful for you, though? Yeah. 
of course. Uh, I mean, just it, it was a job, you know, because I uh, so I had a team called FMX East and I basically booked all of the shows and I built the ramps and I booked I rode the shows and then I booked other riders to ride them with me. So there was a lot of uh, just things to do to make it happen. And then beyond that, you know, it is you get especially doing shows like we did we would end up the promoter brings you in and he's like oh yeah we got plenty of room this and that and then you show up there and the area is not what you thought it was right. or it's like slanted or it's gravel or the roof is low or you know like you just ended up not riding ideal situations most of the time so that really added extra stress to an already stressful you know situation so um and then beyond that, even you hit burnout of, and I love motorcycles more than anything, you know, but when you do it all the time and you just ride constantly, you know, sketchy setups and you go from one to the next, eventually you kind of get lost because you're not really doing it for the reason that you started it anymore. It's just for a check. Right. So I eventually learned to be able to kind of separate, separate it and like kind of have like a healthier relationship with it while I still rode. Did you, um, did you find with your tricks and uh, performances that you were taking more chances or less chances as things went on? Less, especially riding. And I would tell people this, you know, if you're a contest rider, you spend a lot of time at home polishing tricks to go to the contest. If you're a show rider, which I was, now you're just going from demo to demo and riding in suboptimal scenarios. So you end up not doing all your biggest, hardest tricks. You know, you're like, I'm just going to do what I can do and to survive this show. So I feel like eventually, you know, if the setups are consistently like that, it's a detriment to your riding. Uh did you? I think you mentioned that you rode in X Games before. I did. I did not ride oh, in okay. X Games. No. Right. Um, yeah, I never made it to quite that level. I um, did go in mechanic for some friends uh, at big contests, and I've been around that. I've ridden little contests, but no, I never made it to X Games myself. So, how are um, just being in contests and being around contests? Is it? What's the atmosphere? Well, even with this stuff, um, there's a lot more head games going on than people would think. You know, because uh, it's even though it's not like a, um, you're not racing head to head, so you're not running into each other. Mm -hmm. You know, so what's the only other way that you can really mess with somebody? And that's just like putting doubt or, you know, doing other things um, in the pits. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of, it really takes besides even being mentally strong to, um, execute all the time under pressure. It's, you also have to deal with people trying to get in your head about, you know, that ramp is weird or this or that. And I've had a scenario just at a depth at a, you know, a show in Mexico where two, three of us are supposed to flip and the other guy didn't. And when we, we brought our suspension with us, and when we got there, they had different year bikes than what our suspension fit. So me being like, you know, 170, I could still ride the suspension that they had on it. But one of our friends was really big. And I was like, I don't think <laughs> you're going to have a hard time. So the other person that was smaller that was also riding the stock stuff comfortably, he kept telling me how hard the ramp was to flip. And then the first round in the show, he goes out and flips the ramp. And I saw him over rotate because he was like, it's so hard to pull. And then I was like, he's just been messing with me this whole time to get me to not flip so he can be the hero. So then the next round, I ran out, went out and flipped it. And I was like, yeah, he was totally just trying to get me not to flip. Yeah, that's uh, some people would call it gamesmanship. But yeah, that's pretty tacky of him to. Um you know, play that, yeah, and play those There games. wasn't even money on the line. It was just ego, oh. you know. Well, in a lot of a lot of ways, 
battling for ego is it's even worse than battling for money. So yeah, that's true. So did you um, uh, sustain uh, any or many injuries while doing this? Yeah, I've had thirteen broken bones, and then you know a bunch of concussions and contusions and stuff like that. Have you <clears throat> have you ever seen or watched videos of Evil Knievel? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and that didn't deter. Uh, had you started in the business before you saw that, or did you see those? No. Okay. Of course, I saw that stuff. But here's here's uh, the thing: the motorcycles he was jumping on were not made to be jumped. They didn't uh, have the suspension our bikes have. And even, like, Travis Pastrana did a street bike jump. And I actually, this is funny, because I actually have a Harley that I'm building to do a jump. But the difference is I'm going to put super fat suspension on it, and I'm going to have it real slow and stiff. And the issue with a lot of evil stuff was simply, you know, like he landed up top on the flat of the, of the um, landing ramp, and right. it would just it was so springy he'd blow all the way through the suspension and then it was so springy that it would buck him and that's why he went over the handlebars there was a lot of ramps where he had a wedge so there wasn't any the transition onto the ramp was really abrupt if you watch like wimbledon maybe mm -hmm. he comes down that rolling and he hits it and his handlebar he starts to get like uh we call it like head shake his handlebars start going back and forth on the face of the ramp because he G'd into the bottom so hard. So I think just um, understanding, not that there's no danger, obviously, but understanding it and having better equipment, it's definitely a different game than it was when Evil was doing it. And that's why he gets the respect he does, because he was doing it on junk. So it should not have been junked. <laughs> right. Well, I was just curious, was, so... Things have involved because of science and know-how or just out of caution or, or um... uh, know-how and yeah, science, you know, they've probably just more people doing stuff like that. You know, uh, let's look at a, just a dirt bike versus uh, the jump bikes. He was jumping, you know, a new dirt bike now has 12 inches of suspension travel front and rear. What did that, what did that uh, Harley he had, like probably four maybe? Um, and there's also all kinds of valving, and they know so much about setting up suspension and slowing rebound and compression and spring rates that it's just like a different game now. And I take it the ramps are probably... Uh, yeah, going to be... Right, exactly. So even if you look at old school... I mean, the best scenario to explain is um, Travis Petrona, because he did that um, the evil live thing where he jumped the Caesar's Palace on a Triumph or uh, Indian. Mm -hmm. But if you look at his ramps, like so if you look at Doug Dangers even and anybody that was jumping up until, you know, recently, their takeoff ramps are like 11 feet tall. And then and they're really super long, like 30 feet long or longer than that, 40 feet long. And just very mellow. And then their landings are like eight feet tall and also very mellow. And so now you're coming off of something really high and dropping down to your landing, which is going to make it more harsh. If you look at Travis's jump, the takeoffs are uh, like two feet, three feet shorter than what the landing is. So you're now jumping up to your landing so you don't have as much downward momentum when you land. And also his ramp has, it's shorter and it's got a little bit more of a belly to it or mm -hmm. a curve. Right. So that way he kind of like, we call it G's into it. So it like loads his bike a little more. And now you get more lift when you take off versus it being real um, mellow and you're kind of like just driving out. So uh, you mentioned the injuries that you sustained over a period of time, your 16 years. Uh, how did you, how did you rehab and what helped you overcome all those different injuries? Cause you know, you, you watch other, uh, professional athletes and 
for them to come back from even like a calf strain, it's, you know, the amount of time and, and um, energy to rehab. Uh, what helped you rehab? Well, I rehabbed everything myself. Um, I've only honestly been to therapy like a couple of times for two different injuries. And I literally went several times for each. That was it. Um, but I think it's going to sound silly. A lot of it is just fear of not being able to do what I used to do before. Um, and so that when I would get hurt, it would really bother me that I didn't function correctly. Right. You know, so like I would just be very diligent about figuring out what I needed to do to get back range of motion and strength and all that stuff. And just. I kind of get, it's kind of the same way I did with riding, you know, like I just get like obsessed about riding or comedy or whatever and start just trying to figure out, analyze it a lot, figure out ways to become better. And with anything, if you just are consistently putting in time, you'll, you know, progress. And, uh, but that's the physical part of it. What, uh, how was the mental part of it for you? Well, mental part of it was being scared of being <laughs> disabled <laughs> or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's uh, just because you hear people say, like, when you get hurt, you'll never do this and that. And even that stuff kind of I'm like, I'll show you. Maybe that's a little right. of the ego where it's a good thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's like. I don't know. I, I just uh, really want, I, you get hurt. Like I said, you get hurt and then you, it's hard for a person that's very active. Like a, you, it sounds like you run as well. Mm-hmm. You know, for somebody like me, that's active to then not be able to do things on your own or for yourself is really, you know, hard to accept. Yes. So I think some of that, is, you know, that's a lot of it is just me being like, I'm going to do you know, whatever, ride again, or, you know, here's the other thing I will say about an athlete that does say tennis or baseball or soccer, you know, if they pull a calf, that's like a different scenario than a dirt bike rider, because I'm not necessarily articulating my calf that much. Right. So like I have been able to, I've had to have people start my bike and then I rode it because my right ankle hurt so bad that I couldn't kick the bike to start it, but I could kind of finagle it enough to ride on my other foot, you know, and like keep pressure off it. Whereas if you have some sort of leg injury and you're trying to play soccer, there's kind of like no really way around it. So you, you can kind of fake it a little bit with, you know, being on a bike. Um, and, and I totally understand that too, because um, here recently I had a, lower back and upper hip problem is uh, described as an SI joint issue by my uh, doctor and the uh, rehab specialist. And it literally got me to a point where I was just walking and my doctor was like, no, we got to get you back running because walking is not strenuous enough for you. And I said, like, right. well, there's no way to fix this. And, you know, five very simple, easy exercises that I did. I saw the uh, rehab specialist, I think, twice. And he turned me loose to, on my own. Now I'm back running, and I'm actually back sprinting. So, you know, I, I totally understand. That's uh, awesome. Outside of motocross, I th- thought I saw a picture of you. Yeah, and I dug a little bit online. You on a plank snowboarding. Do you yeah. do, you do things like that too, right? Yep. We, uh, my fiance and I go snowboarding all the time. I, um, I, I snowboarded a couple times when I was young, and then I broke my thumb. And I, my first pro race was actually with a broken thumb. So then I stopped snowboarding. From literally, I was 19 until probably uh, four, like I was 36. 
like <laughs> five, six years ago. So, uh, but now she's really good because she's snowboarded her whole life. So it's uh, one of the things active, you know, that we can do where we're a very similar level. Um, so, yeah, we go and do that all the time. I, I uh, of course, being how I am, have to go and try like jumps and rails and stuff. But mm-hmm. I don't get too crazy because I know uh, that's not my game. Right. Well, um, dealing with all this, you got to travel. How is it to travel uh, in the action sports world? It probably isn't as glamorous as a as a uh, NBA basketball team, but how is it? Um, I uh, fortunately don't have the reference to compare it to an NBA player, so uh, it was I. I had a lot of fun. Um, the only downfall I would say is basically when you go like overseas and stuff, you got to take your suspension or in the United States, you got to take your bike. So it's a little bit of a, you know, a hassle that way, but just the travel itself and being, um, like having trips where like I'm making money to go to China or Colombia you know what I mean? Or Ecuador, wherever, like that was amazing to me. And I never, and I've said this a lot and I bet you the people that I know thought less that it was even possible, but I never thought that that stuff was going to happen. You know, in my head, when I was a kid, I was just like X games or whatever, which didn't happen. But at the same time, a bunch of other really cool things did happen that I never expected. So, you know, was I in uh first, class hotels and first you know uh first class flights no but um i'm totally fine with that and i'm just very grateful that i've gotten to see as much of the world as i have and now gotten to realize you know just how everything is different every like everybody likes to say like this is how you do it and it's like that's not how you do it that's how you do it that's not how it's done and I think it's just a good perspective that I've gotten to have to see that everybody everywhere lives different and it doesn't mean it's wrong or right. It's just what they're accustomed to. And that's right. all totally fine. So with travel and competing and um, putting things together, how has all of that helped you transition to this new phase in your life, uh, live comedy? So the reason it even came about is I was hurt. I I think broken my collarbone or something. And instead of hiring an announcer then and a rider to take my place, I just hired a rider and then I started announcing. And I'm just announcing and I'm saying things that I think are funny. And I can see like nobody's laughing really. And then I finally like zoned in on like two guys in the audience that were understanding what I was saying, because I guess the other people probably didn't know, you know, dirt bikes. Well, it was pretty like inside sports jokes. I was doing, you know, about riding. And, uh, once I saw people kind of getting it, I'm just like, Oh, like I could do this. I'm just in the wrong venue. Um, and then fast forward, probably still, I didn't even try it for probably four or five years. And then after I finally just walked away from, uh, basically I got hurt again and I had an infection and I almost lost my leg and it was just like a super long recovery. And I'd had two injuries in a row. I'd had a real bad one, but like two years before that. And I was kind of just over being hurt. So I just totally walked away from doing that. And I just knew that I wasn't going to be fulfilled by just having a regular job. So I started thinking about things that I could envision myself doing and actually as whatever corny as it sounds, you know, like having somebody like a Joe Rogan do comedy where he's more of an athletic guy and does MMA and stuff and not just like, you know, I would say most comedians are probably not in that vein, you know, but me seeing him and being like, oh, he's similar enough where it's not like weird for me to do comedy. So then I uh, just started going to open mics by myself. Didn't tell anybody that I was doing it because I didn't want anybody I knew to see me. 
And I did that for probably six months until I felt like I was comfortable enough to have people I know come and then started, you know, just trying to do shows and stuff. Then beyond that, um, the freestyle motocross and the way that I ran my company there is basically the exact same format that I do for comedy shows now. You know, it's like basically with freestyle, I would deal with the venue or the promoter and then I would set up the show and get all of the other performers. I would perform myself and then get the other performers as well. And I have, you know, speakers and a PA and stuff, which actually I had for the freestyle. Um, so it's like basically the exact same business model for the most part. So um, the first time you, a couple of times you did open mic and the first couple of times you <laughs> did it with friends in the audience. Um, how were those and um, which, which was more stressful? Just a room full of strangers or people that no. you actually knew? Yeah, people that you know, for sure. Um, because I'm sure I've never even seen most of those people again. Probably one or two people, <laughs> you right. know, I've ever seen again. Um, you know, so it's easy to just disassociate. Uh, but I knew that, like, it's all stressful. And I've this was one of my first jokes. But, like, people that I've known for a long time and know that I did freestyle motocross would be like, aren't you nervous? And I'm like, you do get what I did prior to this. Like, I could actually have died, not right. just felt bad about myself if nobody laughs. Like, it's like a totally different risk versus reward here. <laughs> um, well, the one thing that I've always, not always, but I've heard several times from comedians at different levels is one thing you have to remember is the audience is there to root for you. They're not there to root against you. Um, yeah. Was there a point in, in your start where you kind of figured that out and did, uh, and that helped with uh, the stress of the, of the show or are you still working on that? Um, I don't get too stressed. I, um, so if the crowd doesn't laugh, I always, and I think being older and starting and being more mature and having done what I did with riding, I think definitely lends itself to me, you know, like figuring this out faster. But, you know, like you said, they are there to laugh. Right. And if they don't laugh, you know, because sometimes you'll bomb, right? And then mm-hmm. the guy, they're like, you're like, they're not any fun. And then the next guy gets up and murders and you're like, I just did something wrong. So I don't necessarily look at it as I suck or whatever. I just look at it as I did not, I either chose the wrong material. I didn't connect with them off the bat. You know, like it's, I just try to put the ball in my court and be like, how could you have done that better? How could you have related? How could you have changed so, you know, like jokes to, to something that maybe they would have liked more or even related to, because a lot of jokes are, if people don't understand, you know, like I go to mics and shows and these kids are doing, you know, like jokes about video games or something. And I have zero idea what they're talking about because yeah. I don't play the video games, you know? So <laughs> yeah. it's the same thing. You go into a room and you tell something and then people stare at you. It's like, they're probably not even, uh, um, familiar with what you're referencing. So that's, you know, your issue. <clears throat> How Sometimes. would, excuse me. How would you describe your comedy? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I probably abrasive to some people. <laughs> okay. uh, I just, I, it's, more so like I go through my day and things pop up or something happens and I go, huh, that's interesting. You know, like, why is it like that? So I don't know. I don't necessarily like a lot of times pick subjects to go after. Uh, but 
I don't know. I told something to my friend the other day, and he was like, oh, you're, like, said something about being offensive. And I was like, I didn't think any of that stuff was offensive. <laughs> so I don't know. That's a, it's a, I get asked that, and I really don't have a good answer for it. I would like to say I just try and, you know, uh, spin stuff in a, in a, just a direction you haven't seen it before, you know, because that's a lot of times it's like realizing, oh, that is weird. Why is it like that? Today's guest is Clint Esposito, and <clears throat> I've titled this One Extreme to the Other because Clint started off uh, in motorsports, and now he's doing comedy, which <laughs> would, most of us mere uh, mortals would never try neither one of them. So, uh, <laughs> And we would find uh, a lot to be extreme. Um, I've had to, through a different podcast and also through a radio show I used to do in, in, here in Minneapolis and St. Paul for a while. Um, I got to meet a lot of national acts. Have you uh, spent time with any national acts, and have you gained any anything from your time with them? Um, I, I've been around not so. I did uh, basically live on circuses for about five years, a couple different ones, but none of them. It wasn't like Ringling. I was like in circuses right underneath Ringling. So uh, George Carden International and then Jody Jordan International. Um, but I would say maybe the biggest person that I was real close with is if you guys watch America's Got Talent, there was a Canon, uh, Canon guy, mm -hmm. Canon, human cannonball, Dave Smith. I know Dave really well. Um, and I think most, a lot of it, what you learn from people like that is the professional side of the business, you know, and just how to carry yourself and how to deal with, uh, you know, contracts and employers and, you know, negotiating and just how to carry yourself. Uh, anybody that for the most part gets themselves into a position like that, where they're traveling the world and they're well-known in something, you know, is not screwing off all the time and uh, they're respectful of everybody in the building, no matter. That's the thing you learn the most, right? The people that, and I say again, not all the time because some people get really big and then their ego takes over. But for the most part, especially if somebody is hands-on in their own career, you know, and dealing with booking at all at any level, they're going to be way more respectful of everybody right. because they know that those people are even the fans like all those people are paying you and without them you're in trouble yeah um like i said i've i've had a chance to talk to many different comics over the years from uh bill burr to uh you know scholar brothers to um gary owens just names that i've just thrown out but yeah. they've all had somewhat of a likability to them. You know, they were always polite and kind, um, appreciative of other people's time and whatnot. The only time I can remember on air at the radio station, we once had a guy who um, we've come to figure out later on, he pretty much sold his sh show out over the internet by using you know uh, social media mm. he really didn't want to be there that morning and the lead guy of our show i asked him how it was going how you doing you know was trying to strike up a conversation with him the guy was just being resistant <laughs> and um you know, we never ask, as I would never ask you, to do your, do bits or do your act when you're being interviewed. And we, mm -hmm. we weren't doing that. And the guy pretty much, <laughs> he not pretty much, he said, well, you know, I do all my, uh, all my advertising and stuff over social media. So I, 
I don't really need radio. As he's sitting in a radio station. Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, okay. And went The problem there, though, is that you still have people listening to the radio that now are like, uh, I don't like this guy because he. Correct. You know, so it's still not a good, not a good look. Right. Just even if you're not interested. Act like you're interested. Or yeah, answer a couple questions, questions and then go about your day. But, right. <laughs> play play around for five minutes and, you know, get through the segment. And, you know, we can pretty much tell that you didn't want to be there, so we wouldn't wouldn't keep you and, right. uh, <laughs> and let you go. Whereas if somebody's really into the show and being, you know, we would ask them, hey, you got another 15, 20 minutes you can stick around and, because, you know, we really like the way things are going. and So, no, this, <laughs> this to the point where we went to a commercial break. He left. That was the end of the interview. Wow. Uh, the comedy club, which is a pretty big comedy club in town. There's two really big ones in Minneapolis-St. Paul. One is Acme Comedy Club. The other is Rick Bronson's House of Comedy. And. Um, he was booked at one of them. They actually dropped him and flew in no another. Way. And flew in another act for the weekend. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, didn't <laughs> yeah. work out. Huh? No, so <laughs> it sounds like you're on the right path. What you're saying, you know, check your ego at the door and um, just go with the flow and. And be yourself, and be, but also be respectful and be kind. And, and there's nothing about in-your-face humor. I mean, there's all types of humor. In-your-face, laid-back, um, passive-aggressive. Uh, there's yep. many different comics. That's why there's many different comics out there. You know, that's why there's yeah. m- many different uh, sodas. Because there's always one for a certain group or, you know, certain tastes so yeah and it's sticking it out and finding the people that enjoy your comedy right um so how long have you been in the comedy i forgot to ask you this question from the start since 2016 and how has things been going for you uh pretty good i mean i've you know, gotten to uh, travel a little bit. I got to go to Chicago to do a couple shows, and um, I uh, managed or managed comedy in a theater here. And I just found a new venue, actually, like ten minutes away from my house. So, um, you know, it's like anything; it's a grind, and you just gotta. This is, you know, everybody says. Uh, Learn to love the process, and I don't agree with that. I say find something that you love doing, and then you already enjoy the process of whatever it is. So, you know, I enjoy doing comedy just like I enjoyed riding, and I was riding for free, you know, because I like I enjoyed doing it. So if it's something that you would do anyway, and right. you can figure out how to get paid for it, well, then that's awesome. Well, it, it sounds like you're attacking it from kind of a two different levels. One as a performer, but also as a, like, for lack of a better term, a producer. You know, yeah. You're, you're um, putting on shows and you're helping other comics like yourself uh, get into it, uh, the business. Uh, do you enjoy that aspect at all? Um. I do and I don't. You know, the if I could make, it's not like, you know, this is still all building, but if I could make to just show up and headline mm-hmm. what I make to produce, what I produce, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, just showing up and um... talking. Talking and being taken care of is a great thing. Whereas, yeah, showing up and taking care of others and worrying about yourself and worrying about the audience and all that can be stressful. Exactly. Again, 
key word is stressful. How do how do you handle the stress of the comedy world? Same thing. I slow down, take some deep breaths, and just go. We're gonna do what we can do right now. You know, I think um, with anything, you get you start to get stressed, and you think about all the things that you want to do, and you know the pressure. And it's here's actually good. I'll, this is actually the best way to explain it, and especially with like um, action sports and stuff. But it's the same thing with you know, because just the fear of that is different. But it's the same thing with this stuff. And when you feel stressed and you start to worry, you just go, what can I do right now to be more prepared when that time comes? And if you're always preparing for the time, you don't have enough time to be nervous. And then once you get there, you can at least go, I've done everything that I could do to be prepared for this moment now. So I think that's the best thing is busy yourself with the goals or like the tasks that you need to do to be ready when that time comes. And that will help with your anxiety as well, because at least now you're like, I'm working towards this. I'm not just sitting here fretting about it. I'm actually putting in some kind of action. Well, uh, Clint, this, uh, this has been an interesting and enlightening interview. Um, one last question. Did, um, Going into comedy, did you think your uh, experience from motor action sports would help you in comedy? Only in the, I mean, I guess so, in a couple aspects. In the aspect of it's the same business model. So I was like, it's kind of the same thing. Um, but also you're with that, you're trying to sell them people jumping motorcycles in their parking lot. So this is a lot less uh, insurance to worry about. Um, and just, um, I would say work ethic, you know, because it's basically, I looked at it the same way. Like you can't get around in a, in a physical sport, you can't get around having to physically put the time in and put the effort in, you know? So like that kind of translated over to work ethic in this, where you're like, I need to be doing something, you know, tangible. That's actually like progressing me. So I probably, um, you know, mindset maybe more than anything. This has been Clint Esposito from one extreme to the other, motor motor action sports to the wonderful world of comedy. I don't know if you picked up on it. I love I comedy. did. That was a good pun. <laughs> that was great. No, not <laughs> only that, but I'm just saying that I love comedy. I, I spent oh. probably way too much watching comedy on TV on my Netflix and um, so. Um, That's all right. Yeah. Um, Who's your favorite? Uh, I would have to say Chappelle, Bill Burr, Chris Rock are probably my top three right now. Yeah. So. They're good choices. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this, Clint. Where can people find you and how can they reach you? On uh, Clint Esposito on everything, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Those are basically the platforms I'm on the most. Um, I've been making an effort to really, I do a lot of motocross and freestyle motocross related um, little videos, like cut highlights from the races and stuff. Um, and I do my own uh, podcast as well. So I'll interview some people or just talk about, you know, big subjects that come up that I feel compelled to talk about. So, but uh, yeah, you can find all that on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram under the name Clint Esposito. And uh, I'm the only one as far as I know. <laughs> and you're not related to Tony and Phil, so. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been Clint Esposito, um, motor sports uh, performer, and now comedian here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single touch activation without holding your phone. 
violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please. Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, for the wrap-up of this episode of JB's Low-Tech Podcast. Again, today's guest was Clint Esposito, motorsports, action motorsports performer, now comedy producer and comedy performer. I know it's been a few weeks since I've had an episode, and I thank you for your patience, and thank you for your continued listenership, and let's hope that we don't have another break like that again well until next time thanks for listening here at the jb's low-tech podcast jb is my name and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game i am negro black african-american black black Django. jb damn dolomite great card in heaven you know Our great Negro sex machine.